Welcome to Gen Z Deep Dive. I'm your host, Aaron Brown, and we are brought to you by the Institute for Generational Dynamics. We are also brought to you by our sponsor, Opals and Cosmos, or Opals and Cosmos. I just like to pronounce the word Cosmos, who makes quality pins that we enjoy wearing here around the Institute for Generational Dynamics. If you get a chance, go over to the link on the video and check them out. We guarantee you will love their products. So this week, we want to remember Halloween at Yale University, uh, specifically the Halloween season in 2015. It's the four-year anniversary of the protests at Yale University. And this was when Gen Z age students on the campus of Yale caused an uproar. What was the uproar about? Well, in 2015, Yale's administration sent out an email guiding, maybe warning, students to be cautious of how they dressed for an upcoming Halloween festivities. Dr. Erica Christakis, an expert on education and child development, who lectured at Yale while also simultaneously serving as a residential life director, read the email from administration and felt conflicted by the email. Erica decided to respond to the email and questioned whether or not Yale administrators should advise students on their Halloween garb. Sure, maybe this was good for Yale's spirit of avoiding hurt and offense, but she was worried that the growing tendency to cultivate vulnerability in students carries unacknowledgeable costs. She questioned institutional exercise of implied control over college students. And free speech and the ability to tolerate offense are the hallmarks of a free and open society. These are some of the things that she wrote in her email response. However, what she didn't know was that the email would her response would also go to the student body. When the student body read and interpreted the email, they interpreted the email as support for racist costumes. Erica and her husband, who also taught and was a residential life director at Yale, were both denounced as racist. And we want to show you a quick video of... Erica's husband as he was surrounded by a group of Yale students. You have all for racism. Okay. So we're sitting here telling you that you are being racist. You are being offensive. You admitted that you hurt us. Why can't you say sorry? That has been my biggest reaction from this email is that you're not listening. It is no longer a safe space for me. And I find that incredibly depressing because I feel that in your role as master and associate master after sending that email and after not having an appropriate response that our opinion has been dismissed. That you guys have not said, I hear you, I hear that you are hurting, and I am sorry that I have caused you to feel pain. I have not heard that from you, and I have not heard that from your wife. And that is what I want to hear. I don't want to hear any more defensive terms because it's not, it's not fair to us. The moral of Michaela's comment is now the moral of the story is that she wants an apology, yet you respond not with an apology. I still think that the yeah, phrase so, hurt feelings Okay, is, tell me the is, phrase you want me to use, I'll use it. I don't know, was an expression of racism. I want to make sure. 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 I want to make sure
I say? If I cannot. Let us tell you if you're being racist. Okay, no, no. Actually, that is actually how it works. One second. If I smile, it's seeming like I'm dismissing. I honestly, Okay, so I'm trying. No, I want you to own the fact, all of you, to own the fact that it's very easy to take something I say and misinterpret it, okay? That's part of it. So I'm trying very hard to talk to you, to show you the kind of person that I am. Let me say something else. So I have a vision of us as people, as human beings. Yes. That actually privileges our common humanity. That is interested not in what is different among us, but what is the same. Okay? And so we all have the capacity, I believe. Okay, so you Let me finish one sentence. I believe, even though I have a different life experience than you, even though I have a different skin color and gender than you, I believe there are parts of your experience that I can understand as a human but being. You know, hold on, one, one idea at a time. One idea at a time. If you want to just uh, look for reasons to either dis uh, to, to think ill of me, you are free to do so. But if you like to, I understand you think ill of me. But if you want to hear what I have to say, and you want to actually, you know, uh, act in a way that, like, in, like, is like people who are interested in a conversation, then let me at least address as a human being one thing at a time. Like I was just saying, I have a vision of ourselves that unites our common humanity. Okay? So I believe even though I'm not like you in the sense of my superficial appearance, that I can sit down and talk to you and understand, understand your predicament. I am sick looking at you. I am disgusted watching Alex argue with you. You are not listening. You are disgusting. Ultimately, Christakis resigned, and her husband, he took a sabbatical for a year, then he resigned. Jonathan Haidt, who wrote the book The Coddling of the American Mind, writes about this, this very same incident, and he says that it's, it's in our own mental prototype, or it's in the student's mental prototype, to think of themselves in two types of groups, victim or oppressor. And everyone is placed into one box or the other. This revealed much about what Ivy Leagues have turned into in America. When we say Ivy Leagues, we mean Harvard, Yale, Brown. It also revealed how many Gen Z have come to see the world or their worldview of America. Is it victim or is it oppressor? We might also look at the Berkeley rights in 2015 and 2016 in the wake of Donald Trump's winning the presidency. Uh, we also saw schools like Middlebury become violent in which a speaker was assaulted while attempting to flee the campus. What are some conclusions we should draw from campus violence against the American value of free speech? Specifically, how does all of this work with Gen Z? Again, Dr. Haidt writes about the effects of tribalism on all of our minds, not just Gen Z. Again, in his book, he points out several ideas. One idea that he grapples with is Henry Tajfel's idea of minimal group paradigm. Now, Tajfel served in World War II. His family was murdered by Nazis. And he wanted to understand the conditions under which people would discriminate against members of an outgroup. Now, there's two types of groups in these types of studies, in-groups and out-groups. So he conducted a series of experiments. And he divided people into two groups 
based on trivial and arbitrary criteria. What does that mean? It means that the way that he divided them, it just didn't matter. So an example is each person first estimated the number of dots on a page. So he gave them a piece of paper, had so many dots, and he was like, okay, estimate how many dots are on the page. And half of the people who participated in this experiment were told that they had overestimated the number of dots, and they were put into a group of overestimators. The other half went to underestimators. Seems simple enough. Then he asked participants to distribute points or money to all the other subjects. So if you're an overestimator, then you need to distribute points or money to underestimators and vice versa. And no matter how trivial or minimal these arbitrary separators people tended to distribute whatever was offered in favor of their in-group members. So if you're an overestimator, you give most of the points and money to other overestimators. If you're an underestimator, you give most of the points and money to your fellow underestimators. What's the point? The point is the human mind is prepared for tribalism. And Human evolution holds that the story of individuals competing with other individuals is what drives us as we evolved throughout the ages. This also includes groups competing with other groups. So we compete individually. We also compete collectively as groups. And sometimes we compete violently. Uh, this can be known as tribalism. And the question is, how do we deal with conflict from other tribes? Because in our human minds, we can flip the tribalism switch on pretty easily. And it causes us, when we flip this switch, to bind closer to our other tribal members. The great thing is, is that the human mind can be conscious of tribalism. That means we can control it, and we can choose not to become angry. We can choose not to become angry when the people that we consider part of our in-group fraternize with those we might consider the enemies. So if you're an overestimator and you see your buddy Joe fraternizing with an underestimator, you can choose not to become angry. You can turn the tribalism switch off. And the goal of a community is to turn down everyone's tribal circuits. What happens when a college community emphasizes distinctions among groups and claims that distinctions are not trivial or arbitrary? As well, tell everyone that they are engaged in a zero-sum conflict. It's all or nothing. It's this tribe or no tribe at all. Uh, this leads to the point that there are two kinds of identity politics that feed into our tribalism. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with identity politics, it is the political mobilization organized around group characteristics such as race, gender, and sexuality, as opposed to party ideology or some other interest. The point is, everybody does it. 
An example would be ranchers banding together to promote the interests of ranching. Uh, the LGBTQ community, they bandied together to promote the interests of their community. Evangelical Christians bandied together to promote the interests of their group. I'm just looking for more ways to use the word bandy at this point. So how identity is mobilized uh, makes an enormous difference. Uh, sometimes it's fighting for general welfare of group members or creating hatred for another group. What we want our Gen Z generation to grasp, especially if they're going through uh, university, is we want them to understand the, the mobilization attitude and strategy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He led a political movement largely of African Americans and joined by others engaged in nonviolent protests. He appealed to the shared morals and identities of Americans, unifying languages of religion and patriotism. So he used phrases like brothers and sisters. These are the words of Jesus Christ. So he appealed to, to the religious sentiments held in Americans, but he also knew how to connect with the patriotic elements that Americans hold in their hearts. So he appealed to America's founding documents, where it too has a sense of religious fervor to it. And King evoked the framers and founding fathers and made clear his movement was not to destroy America, but to heal it. We also might consider another uh, figure from the, 19, from the 1950s, uh, Polly Murray, who was an African-American and queer Episcopal priest and civil rights activist. Quote, I intend to destroy segregation by positive and embracing methods. When my brothers try to draw a circle to exclude me, I shall draw a larger circle to include them. Where they, where they speak out for the privileges of a puny group, I shall shout for the rights of all mankind. And this type of language uh, is seen almost 60 years later in the Marriage and Equality Act of 2012. Again, Gen Z sees the world through the lens of, am I safe? That's what we ask here at the Institute for Generational Dynamics. And it's possible in our hypercharged environments like American college campuses, which, which our American college campuses by nature become a microcosm of its own. It becomes its own small town and can become excluded or exclusive to the rest of the community around it. Uh, Gen Z individuals who are tribal thinking come to think that violence is the only way to preserve their safety.